What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Abigail Tisch at RRE Ventures. RRE is one of the top funds in the world and they invest in early stage category defining startups across all sectors and the country. Abigail works primarily with their investment team and focuses on opportunities within mobility, climate, supply chain, and women's health. In this talk, we discuss learning to operate within venture, climate tech, and the limitations of capital, and tailwinds and opportunities within mobility tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Today, we have someone who's a close friend of my close friends and works at an amazing fund, RE Ventures, Abigail Tisch. And we're excited to have her. So before we dive into all the goods with her, how about, Abigail, you give us a, a quick overview of who you are as a human being and how you got to where you are today. Who I am as a human being. Okay. I'd say that there are probably really two main drivers in my life that have gotten me where I am today. The first being that I love talking to people. I love stories. I always have. And the second being that I follow my interest and just let that lead me organically to the best opportunity that I can find at any given moment. From the more concrete perspective of how I got here. I grew up in Manhattan. I had a really relatively traditional childhood. I went to Brown, thought I was actually going to study art history and go work in museums, but ended up just really missing a very functional piece. And so ended up studying urban studies and cities. And then after graduation, moved to Israel to work for a face recognition technology company, which gave me great operational exposure. And it was really there that I kind of hit upon this venture path and was like, oh, I'd really love to be doing early stage investing. And so I came back to the U.S. about a year ago and just found myself lucky enough to land at RRE. That is an amazing story. RRE has uh, always been a really, really interesting firm to me because I feel like you all have an incredible portfolio, but have kept it pretty low key. And like of the New York investors, uh, it's always been one that I'm a huge fan of. Tell me about, I guess, why RRE for you? And then we'll dive into a few questions. RRE is really interesting that way. We have been around for a shockingly long time. We've been around since the early 90s, actually, which is just like forever in venture years, um, especially for an East Coast firm. So we were started by Jim Robinson, who was previously the CEO of American Express. His son, also named Jim Robinson, and Stu Elman. Those are our founding partners. 
What I love about the firm is that because we've been around for so long, we've really established our voice and our brand as a firm. We also have developed a really strong pattern recognition. For me, coming in as a new person in venture, it's amazing to work alongside people who have been doing this for so long that they can kind of instantly recognize what's going to succeed, what's going to fail, what qualities to look for. Um, there's just a really strong pattern recognition there that's exciting for me to get to be a part of. So yeah, that's YRRE. Yeah, pretty obvious when you say it like that. <laughs> the nice guys win is, is huge. It is. RRE is just a, it's just the nicest work environment and they don't sacrifice on quality at all. So I love it. True that. Well, on that point, there's so many things you could bounce into, but let's start with your thoughts on how people operate within venture. Have you noticed at your firm, especially, or just generally as you were, were going down the path of picking your firm, I guess, differences in how people operate? at different stages of the investor journey? Yeah, I, I think about this a lot, actually, because one of my favorite things about venture is just how diverse a group of people it is that find their way into venture and how many different types of people and types of thinkers can succeed. So just as a contrast, one of my sisters is a banker and my brother is a lawyer. There's pretty much one concrete describable set of skills that makes someone a good banker and the same goes for being a lawyer, but it's not true of being a venture capital investor at all because it's basically applied intuition and there are just so many ways that people can go about that. So you've got like the finance VC or the heavy quant lens, you've got people who are just excellent at creating networks and socializing. You've got like the ex-operators and then you've got the people who are very content heavy, content diverse, and, and just a million different ways to craft your own brand, so to speak. So I, I love that because I have never felt as a person, like I really fit into any specific mold. And so there's just room to run in venture as someone who doesn't necessarily conform into something and a ton of opportunity for basically any kind of thinker to succeed. Love that. You want to talk to us a little bit about what it's like specifically? And this is an important thing. As a person of color, I, I, I somewhat identify but can never truly identify as a male. But what is it like specifically being a, a young woman investor that's building a, a successful career in this space? Yeah, I, I also think about this a lot when I, when I think about the venture journey and what it means to be a junior woman at a firm, I feel like there's a bit of a Venn diagram and it's, it's probably in some ways difficult to be junior. In some ways it can have its own challenges to be a woman, but the Venn diagram overlap, I think uh, is hard because I noticed that a lot of junior female investors doubt themselves a lot more than their male counterparts might. And there's a lot of buy-in, I think, that comes from like serious conviction in either a company or a field or, or just like a general investment area that a lot of women take at the junior level. They take longer to get there. And then just the typical things that are not venture specific, but I think for young women, they get a lot of feedback to speak up more, to be louder, and to sort of adhere to these kind of 
typically male ways of, of operating within a professional atmosphere that might not necessarily resonate as natural for them, but their careers will suffer if they don't do it. So I think about that and, and I don't necessarily have a position one way or the other so much as just, I find it a useful framework for myself. If I notice myself doubting something or not necessarily having a resoluteness that I might have and just find it an interesting heuristic. Got you. There's a, there's this show called twenties. And uh, I believe the actress from the recent pretty large film called Zola is one of the main characters. And there's this one episode where there's this thing called totting, which is like white mailing effectively. Mm-hmm. And the concept behind it, which I think any woman or person of color would find hilarious is like whenever you find yourselves in one of the positions where you think, oh, if I don't behave this, or if I don't step up with this type of confidence or whatever it might be, just imagine yourself as a white male named Todd. And Todd. <laughs> and like, I love that. And, uh, and, and, and so what they found was that the more they taught it, the more success they had. Well, because Todd is never wrong. Todd is always right. <laughs> exactly. And they truly believe it. That's so funny. I love that. That's so correct. For me, the struggle is more, well, do I want to be a Todd? I know I might do better as a Todd, but do I really want to be a Todd? I'm not sure. That's not my style. Whoa. Uh, So that was actually the bigger point of the episode. And what they found was you need to have the confidence of a Todd to be yourself. I see. I like that. Yeah. A Todd from now on. Yeah, just literally, it's a verb. Let's talk. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so speaking of societal structures that are kind of screwed up and you shouldn't agree with or should agree with, another point you've raised is that money doesn't solve everything. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk more about that and maybe talk about that in context of potentially climate tech with the new influx of capital into that space. Maybe talk about the infrastructure bills. Or take it wherever you want, but just the thesis of money not solving everything is fascinating to me as an investor. Yeah, actually, some of my thinking on this comes from Kai Cash, who's over at Primary, who- Love Kai. Yeah, he really has such interesting views on what money can and cannot accomplish. I think the crux of it really is that not everybody needs venture funding in order to build the kind of business that they're setting out to build. And people don't always realize that there are costs associated with taking venture capital money and it might not be worth it to everyone. I think there are also a lot of people who believe that they will become legitimate when they have venture capital funding, whereas you're going to need to build your own legitimacy and find legitimacy no matter what. And it's just about how much ownership you want to keep, what sorts of value you want to get from the money that you're raising. It's a really good source of funding for some companies, and it makes not that much sense for others. So it's not really a one-stop shop. And I think people tend to think of it that way. But Kai can also go on about more of that stuff as well. And and so I would direct you towards him for more conversation on that. In terms of climate, I think about it in terms of different kinds of money. Like they're, not all money is the same 
thing and it doesn't accomplish the same thing. So when you take apart an issue like climate and say, well, wouldn't it be great if there were more venture funding going towards the cause of sort of figuring out how to unscrew ourselves with climate stuff, I think that there's realistically a limit as to what venture funding can and cannot accomplish there. And it's like the buzziest thing ever right now to invest in climate. I know we're looking at stuff, all the generalist firms are diving into climate tech 2.0 or whatever you want to call it, but the models don't always line up. For example, when you think about what's achievable and what's not, what a good fit for a venture model is, is something that's not that risky, that has a low capital intensive requirement and that will generate returns within a pretty short time frame because the venture timeline is usually like 10 years about that. And then when you think about sort of climate solutions, it's the exact opposite, right? It's like you've got high capital intensive businesses, very high risk, like we don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And it's going to take a long time before we see any returns. So I think just being really clear in order to avoid greenwashing or to avoid false promises when institutional venture goes in to do climate tech investing and say, no, we're not trying to necessarily solve this climate issue so much as deploy capital in a way that might help support an ecosystem that can generate a solution is probably a lot better. And then a lot of those solutions will come from governments and public entities. Family offices can do a lot because the risk isn't that much an issue for them. They don't need the returns the same way, debt financing. But just being really clear about what money is going to accomplish what, I think is useful. Got it. Do you want to talk about a few topics within climate tech that you do think might be a fit, could be worth the the capital being deployed? Yeah, no, there are definitely lots and lots of applications within climate that's great for venture. Usually those are going to be for a generalist fund like RRE. I can just speak to the sorts of things we're looking at, which are typically software heavy. So there's lots of stuff within mobility, climate risk analysis, insurance that goes alongside that sort of supply chain stuff and visibility into supply chains makes a huge difference from a sustainability perspective. I find a bunch of areas like those and more really interesting. And there's definitely a lot that venture can do there, but I think just getting clear about the the solution and like what we're actually expecting to gain is huge. Yes, yes, yes. I would love to think about some areas where climate tech can naturally find itself embedded in. Some being like food tech, where there's a lot of our carbon footprint pushed out into the world, supply chain and freight. Actually, you have some interesting thoughts in the supply chain and freight, right? Like you've said that when we last spoke, that this was a a really, really great moment for visibility and micro-tracking. And, and just generally fixing the way we ship and track goods. You want to maybe dive into that a bit? 
Yeah, yeah. So I love both mobility and supply chain. In some ways, they're very different, but in some ways, they kind of go together. From a supply chain perspective, making the supply chain visible is highly correlated with more sustainable practices, because if you actually know what's going on along the supply chain, you can actually like control your emissions much better than if you have no clue what's going on. It's kind of obvious, but there are all sorts of technologies that are being applied and software is to sort of like really get granular. Like Tive, which is one of our portfolio companies that increases visibility along the supply chain. Because I think when a lot of people think about EVs and mobility, they think about it from a passenger perspective, which is important, but it's really sort of the freight, the shipping, um, the fleet stuff that's going to make a huge difference when you switch over to EVs because there's so much scale there and those are the, the highest emitters within the sector. Right now, there are actually in America fewer than 1% of cars uh, and trucks on the road that are electric and that's going to need to just shoot up over the next 15 years. But I think within that, there are so many opportunities to get those fleet, freight, and trucking vehicles over to electric first. And that's largely driven by not only the, the Biden infrastructure bill and tailwinds there, but also just the fact that it's cheaper. The ROI is so much better for these commercial operators that they're going to do it based on that alone. And then there are all the little bits in between, like the communication software, the grid management, the fleet coordination stuff, diagnostics and data. And those are the software bits that really are necessary to make this a reality. And so I'm spending a lot of time looking into those and seeing, you know, potential opportunities for us there. And then there are just like really cool companies like Remora, which I love. We're not investors in it, but they're basically attaching hardware onto the backs of semi-trucks and 18-wheelers, which can't electrify yet because of battery constraints, and then capturing the exhaust and sort of saving a ton of emissions there and then selling it. So there are all sorts of really cool little in-between ancillary bits that we don't think about that are, that are just huge. Yeah. Most definitely. One last topic before getting into your thoughts on growth as a venture person, content versus no content, which is like anti-thesis or own thesis for me and Clay, which is femtech. Oh, femtech. Yeah. I have conflicting thoughts about femtech. I really hate the term femtech because to me that screams health, but for women, which I just can't get on board with no matter how hard I try. Like to me, femtech is large enough that it doesn't necessarily need to be broken down into this separate sector in that particular way. But I think on the other hand, anything that you can do to bring more money and more attention into areas of women's health are really, really important. I think there's probably a lack of funding within femtech going towards cancer that affects women or menopause or even contraception. And there's probably 
an outsized proportion of that funding going towards fertility and towards areas that are pretty family oriented or at least sound nice to us as a society. So that's something that like within this space, I'd like to see change. Yeah, those are, I guess, my general thoughts on Femtech. Got it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I feel similarly about diversity tech. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but- it's frustrating when something gets pigeonholed like that because it, it has ups and downs. It's a double-edged sword. It brings attention, but it's it's not necessarily quite accurate to the magnitude of what it is that's being done. And there's a way of making women's health cutesy and, and female and pretty in a way that it's not. It's the same as human health. It doesn't need to be pink and adorable. Yeah, I think it's a misclassification problem, right? There are certain health conditions that like are only for women or certain applications that can, that are only geared towards women and same for people of different ethnic backgrounds. But generally there is like a a cloud of things around those core components that are unique to the individual or unique to that individual group. But no, spot on. Tell us this, content or no content in regards to building a career in venture? Mm, Content is different than brand. I think brand is absolutely necessary. I'm not sure content is. And sometimes I think a no content brand can be as strong as a content heavy brand, but they're both brands, if that makes sense. For me, I'm still figuring out my balance. I am not Twitter active. I, I look around, I see what's going on, but my instinct is is not necessarily to be a casual content person so much as I do, I'll sort of pick a topics, dedicate some time, go through it. And that's more my style, but I don't necessarily have an opinion. I think it's like to each his own, there are different ways to do it, but I do think having a brand is important. However you want to define that. Yeah. I think Clay and I haven't done much like tailored content in the sense of like writing our thoughts out on a topic. Maybe I did some in my point 72 days. Well, yeah, I think just having a general brand, whether that being helpful or letting your company speak for yourself could be really, really big. Finding a voice in some way, whether it's voice through content to a broad audience or voice within a certain community. But I think voice, perhaps that's even more accurate than brand, but I think voice is important. At some point. Have you ever checked out uh, Benchmark's website? I don't know that I have. It's hilarious. I don't think it's been updated in 20 years. It literally just has their fund name, their logo, and their address. Yeah, totally. Slow Ventures is the same. It's the opposite of Andreessen, blog posts, blah, 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 YouTube videos, um, yeah, there are, there are just totally different ways to do it. And there is an asset to being sort of a, a quiet player, but I can't necessarily say that I come out on a certain side. I can only speak for myself and my own voice is still emergent because I've only been doing this for a year. So it's still new. True. Well, I think we owe you answers. Ask us literally anything. Okay. Uh, this is a hard one, I guess, if you've not thought about it before, but what are your core values? Clay? Ew. Sheesh. All right, that's the first. It's a hard one. I can ask an easier one. No, 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 no. Hold it. 
All I gotta do is come up with one better than Clay, and, I, and I'm in business. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh no, I want to be someone that's figured out priorities at a young age. I think a lot of people don't have that necessarily figured out, and they're just kind of running this rat race, and they're so career oriented to a point where it just starts to negatively impact the rest of their life. Don't want to do that. Never wanted to do that. Just want to be in a position where career is working out great and everything else is still in a good position outside of that too. So I don't know if that's like necessarily a value system per se, but I think that's kind of a mantra that I want to continue to live by. Yeah. For me, the, the biggest thing is malleability. What I care the most about is ability to see the world how you want it to be and be able to make it that way, whether that be myself or someone else. That's kind of why I love art and I love travel and I love creating anything from technology to ideas and entrepreneurs' heads as an investor. The throughput on that has always just been intellectual honesty and that leading to uh, reality in regards to envisioning things and, and actually catalyzing them. So I love that. I have another question too, uh, which is what's an area, an area that people focus on right now in venture investing that is really not interesting to you at all. And you think people are just way off to spend time there. People throw the word community out way too much. I think people mistake community for an audience like 95% of the time. I think community architecture and like community infrastructure in particular is really interesting. But I think that like 90% of quote unquote communities are just audiences disguised as big communities. This is a hard one because if you look hard enough, you can find innovation in anything and there will always be a 3.0 to a 2.0, right? Yeah, that's the easy answer though. Fine, like I think <laughs> for me, I hate ad tech. I can't. Oh I my can't. god, I was literally about to say that. I was gonna yeah? say anything that's like absorbing data to help people sell stuff better nowadays is just like getting annoying to me. It annoys me. I know. I'm like, get out of my face. This is not innovative. Broadline AI is just annoying to me. I would say like crypto, but obviously I'm wrong. But it's like the thing where everyone was hot on it, then everyone isolated and it was a desert. And now everybody's like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking up my firm's crypto lead. And if I can't get into this web 3.0, web 2.0, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, dude, I guess the, the timing is right now, but there is more to the world. And there is a reality in which not everything needs to have that as part of its application set or infrastructure. And like, let's use it when it's needed. So that's something that I say, it's not necessary for, it's not like Bitcoin is not eating the world is my thesis, but it is something that's incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. I like it. So quick fire. Oh, wait, you have, you can ask another question if you want, but if not quick fire. No, let's do quick fire. Cool. So how we go, we do these at the end. Got five questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? I feel like you might get this one a lot from people, but I find relax so useless. I hate being told to relax. Yeah. 
Fair. That's actually a first. I don't think. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Relax. I hate it. Don't tell me to relax. Yeah. Um, next one in the last year. Yo, that is that is so true, by the way. People always been like, take a break. <laughs> or like, you know, you don't have to achieve everything today. You kind of do because someone else will. Be more hungry. Don't be less. It's also not relaxing to be told to relax. I just can't. I can't do it. Thanks. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? I think it's potentially counterintuitive, but backing off my meditation practice at certain moments this past year when I felt I just needed to take one thing off my plate was really useful for me like taking it less yeah like I yeah exactly like the opposite of what you would usually hear which is I've been a regular meditator for eight years for a long time but there were times over this past year when I felt just like too exhausted too overwhelmed to keep it up and instead of and and it was ironic because it was like right when I needed the most presumably when you're exhausted when you're tired like that's when it will nourish you the most but I found that actually just letting myself like absolving myself of it being like no I'm not doing this today and it's actually fine was so nice and there's so much pressure to have great mental hygiene and to do this self-care stuff it can get exhausting and that defeats the purpose So for me, just like backing off that actually was a habit that improved my life. Totally. Why do you think that is? Because that is a different answer than we hear from most people. Yeah. Why do I think that's what improved my life? Because I think there is so much self-care to be done that, yeah, it just, it gets exhausting. Like sometimes we just do these things to go through the motion and like our bodies just need, our bodies and our brains just need like to have fewer things to accomplish. And if meditation is a thing that you need to accomplish in a day, then removing that from the list is an alleviation sometimes. And that's not to say give up on a practice or throw it away entirely, but just to know that sometimes, sometimes you just need to indulge. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I think there's like this balance between too much routine and too much randomness in a day. I love days that are just super random, like not planned at all. Don't have a checklist of things to do. And I can just wander around, figure it out. Don't know what's going to come to me. But other days when I think I'm more productive, like I would check list of things to do and then I could look back on it. But yeah, at the end of the day, like I think the less you have to do on your to-do list, then I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. I think like structures are there to serve us and like a structure as in a routine, like meditation is just hugely helpful over macro amounts of time over years. And then sometimes just letting yourself like do the thing that's quote unquote, like the wrong thing to do or the lazy thing to do is sometimes just right. Yeah. But you can't, it it is, you're right. It's that balance. You can't, that can't dominate it. You can't do that forever, but every once in a while, just letting, like letting yourself have some give there, I think is nice. hundred percent. Let's see. Okay. I got three more here. So aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Entertaining everyone's egos. It's truth. 
feel like there's very few people you can just speak honestly to. Yeah. Or just be like, no, I don't feel like participating in the flattery or like flirtation game right now. Yeah. A lot of back padding. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? I'd say lean really hard into your interests and into your quirks. Let yourself be weird and a little confidence goes a long way. And then last one, who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to? My cousin, Jane. She's a mentor. She's a friend. She's an advisor. I think I've got like a lot of people who I can go to who are siloed into various areas of my life, but she's really someone who, who I can go to for personal, professional, logical, emotional, like anything at all. So she's a mentor. Love it. Well, that's quick fire. Just ran through those, ran through core questions. Tyler, anything else? I know we're supposed to ask you who else you want to see on the podcast. You can either answer that here or we can just follow up an email. Answer it here in front of the world. I will answer it in front of the world. I want to see Kai Cash from Primary on the podcast. All right, let's make it happen. Yeah, I'm happy to make that connection. Actually, the homie, I was going to go on that Jamaica trip with him and Anand. You were? I was going to go too. You got to go to the next one. I know, we really do. Yeah, look at us just overlapping everywhere. Yeah. All right, Kai will be next. It has been written in stone. (laughs) Well, with that, we thank you so much. Thank you guys both. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Huge thanks again to Abigail for coming on this week. And we hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Abigail, we've linked her social info within the description below. And Confluence members can also contact her via our directory. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.bc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.